Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome aboard. I have my panel with me here this afternoon. Uh, I've got uh, Ada McLean, Emily Shore, and Jonathan Jarry. And uh, we're going to talk about several things, and we are unabashedly going to promo our event that is coming up next week, which is the annual Lorne Chartier Public Science Symposium that we host at McGill. Uh, Every year we invite uh, top-notch speakers to address the Montreal crowd, and this year it's all about longing for longevity. And, of course, we would all love to do that. We all long for it. But... uh, it isn't much good unless we can have a healthy, long life. Anyway, more about that a little bit later. First, you know, there were not many science books written back in the 1620s. Copernicus had already published his On the Revolution of the Heavenly Spheres. That was in 1543. But Galileo's dialogue concerning the two chief world systems would not appear until 1632. And Newton would not lay the foundations for modern physics with his theory of gravity in Principia until another six decades had passed. However, Martin Blockwitch, a young German physician, made a lasting mark with his Anatomia Sambucci, or in English, The Anatomy of the Elder, a 300-page tome dedicated to a single plant, and that was the elderberry. The botanical name of the plant is Sambucus nigra, with nigra being Latin for black, since the berries of the elderberry shrub have a deep blue-black color. In remarkable detail, Blockwitch described the botany of the plant, as well as various preparations such as the oils, syrups, ointments, juice, and wine that could be produced from this shrub. The most appealing part of the book was a discussion of the ailments these preparations were supposed to be able to treat. Most of these treatments, such as for tuberculosis, stomach problems, tumors, and toothache, were based on folklore rather than fact. But, as it eventually turned out, elderberry extracts may have some merit when it comes to infectious diseases such as influenza and the common cold. In 1995... Israeli researchers carried out a placebo-controlled double-blind study, and that, of course, is the gold standard in science, that demonstrated significantly faster resolution of symptoms of influenza with a standardized elderberry extract. This was further corroborated by another such trial in Norway, this time treating 60 influenza patients with 15 milliliters elderberry or placebo syrup four times a day for five days. Symptoms were relieved four days earlier in the treatment group. The researchers speculated that flavonoids in the elderberry extract stimulate the immune system by enhancing the production of cytokines, and those are special proteins that cells involved in immune reactions use to communicate among themselves. Further laboratory studies demonstrated that flavonoids in elderberry extract can block the ability of the influenza virus from infecting host cells, that was done in the lab in, in Petri dishes. Then in 2016, a placebo-controlled trial investigated colds in air travelers. Why? Because the frequency of infection in this group of people is known to be higher due to confinements in an aircraft and uh, the fact that air circulation is, in many cases, somewhat impaired. 
the placebo group participants had a significantly lower duration of cold episode days. While commercially available standardized elderberry extracts, such as Sambucol, are safe enough, the same cannot be said for home preparations. Elderberries contain small amounts of compounds that can release cyanide, not enough to be lethal, but enough to cause nausea, vomiting, abdominal cramps, and weakness. A Columbia University professor who teaches a class on contemporary civilization learned about this the hard way. By her own account, she is, quote, a great believer in natural this and that. And instead of taking a flu shot, she dosed herself with a tincture of elderberries that she had grown herself. Had she heated the berry extract before, there would have been no problem, since the cyanide would have been released into the air as hydrogen cyanide. The prof hopefully learned that natural does not equal safe. So even... uh, Columbia University professors uh, may not be quite knowledgeable about such issues. This was not the first time that elderberries had caused such a problem. Back in 1983, eight people in California had to be hospitalized after drinking a juice made from wild elderberries and other parts of the plant that they had gathered. Again, had the concoction been heated, the problem could have been avoided. Uh, They all recovered within a few days, so it wasn't all that serious. Of course, uh, elderberry is not the only uh, plant that harbors cyanogenic uh, glycosides. Those are the compounds that can release cyanide. Uh, cassava is another example of this. Uh, cassava is a tuber. It grows in Africa and also in the Caribbean, very much like a potato, and it's a staple, but it has to be properly prepared. Uh, the roots can be piled uh, out in the sun uh, for a couple of days, and there's a slow fermentation process that then will release the cyanide into the air. But there have been cases of poisoning when the root has not been properly uh, prepared. And um, uh, apple seeds, of course, are also notorious, at least in in, uh, the public literature, about harboring cyanide-producing compounds. They do but you would have to eat an awful lot of apple seeds in order to uh, have any kind of problem with it, probably a cupful uh, of them. In any case, you'd have to crush the seeds in order to release the cyanogenic uh, glycosides. There uh, is no problem eating an apple, especially if you're eating the whole core of the apple together with its seeds, because there have been a couple of recent studies published on that. Uh, that the most beneficial compounds in the apples, the various kinds of of flavonoids and anthocyanins, are located in the core of the apple, and a lot of them are in the seed. Most people throw away the core, and calculations have shown that millions of dollars are lost every year because the core is thrown out, could be eaten. And uh, there's a demo actually on the Internet about how to properly eat an apple. And you don't eat it the way that we normally do. That is, you don't chew around the core. You start at the bottom, and you eat up through the top, and you eat everything, leaving only the little bit of stem. And uh, this saves millions of dollars uh, in uh, apple costs, and and you're not throwing away a valuable part of the apple that either ends up in landfill or in the compost bin. So don't say that this show doesn't give you good advice. Uh, The advice in this case is to eat the apple from the bottom to the top, not around the core, and that has some scientific uh, validity. Okay, 
Now you know a little bit about uh, elderberries, their potential for treatment of of, uh, colds and the flu. But of course, it is not an alternative to the vaccine. And uh, the flu season is coming around very quickly. And this is the time to go out there and get your flu shot. Is there any risk? There's no intervention medically that comes with zero risk, but the risk from a flu shot is indeed very, very small. The risk of uh, complications of the flu are large. People think that the flu is just a bad cold, which is not the case. The flu can be a life-threatening disease. So go out and get your flu shot. All right, we're going to take a break, and after that we'll be back, and we will relish you with details about our upcoming symposium uh, this week. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, we just finished talking about uh, eating apple core, and Ada had a comment about this. Uh, and her guinea pigs. Yeah, if I if I eat the apple core, then my guinea pigs aren't going to have much to eat. I always uh, cut open the core, take out the seeds, and give them the core to eat. So there we go. For all of you who have guinea pigs at home, uh, you have to take that into account. It's a specific problem, but it affects many of us. First world problems. <laughs> okay, uh, Jonathan. Uh, stories out there about science being like a pendulum swinging back and forth and, and uh, uh, scientists changing their minds all the time. We don't really. Well, I, it is a complicated issue, and I do want to preface this by saying that science is the best set of tools that we have to figure out how the universe works and to make predictions about the natural world. Uh, it also leads to world-changing technologies, right? We've got airplanes, we've got solar panels, medication, but science is not simple, and the system that we've created in which we do science, and that includes publications and grants and tenure evaluations for professors, that can create bad incentives, which means that the science that we do is not as optimal as it could be. And then we have other factors playing playing in, 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 this, whole, in this whole scenario. And so that leads to a lot of, of, of headlines that, as you say, the, 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 the seesaw movement can get quite uh, nauseating. So uh, I wrote about this for our website very recently. We don't have time to cover all of the many reasons why scientists seemingly keep changing their minds on a variety of topics, including, of course, food and nutrition. Uh, but here are a few, a few reasons why. Uh, the first one being that not all studies are created equal. Uh, there are a lot of really small, really badly designed studies out there, unfortunately, studies that have too few participants in the case of human studies, uh, where the follow-up on these people is too, uh, too quick. So if you're looking for cancer rates, but you only follow your patients for six months, you're not going to discover a lot of cancers. Uh, Other studies that have no control groups, we have no way of knowing what would have happened had they not received a particular treatment, for example. And it's easy to forget that some of these uh, research projects are done by graduate students. Uh, and these students often need to have quick projects so they can graduate on time. And these projects end up getting published in the scientific literature as well. So not all studies are created equal. Then there's also there's the hype cycle, uh, which, with, with which we're, we're quite familiar uh, at the OSS. So you have researchers who, uh, because of the publish or perish mentality, uh, because uh, that they really need to have more funding for their work, uh, they might be incentivized to hype up the results of their studies. And then you have press releases that come along uh, where you know where the, the, the university, for example, where the researcher is working, uh, will further amplify the the findings of the paper. 
And then the media comes along, and uh, many journalists have not been properly trained on how to interpret scientific findings. Uh, many of them lack the time. Uh, we have seen a lot of cutbacks uh, among uh, amongst the ranks of journalists. Uh, and some journalists even do copy-paste jobs from press releases. And some of our listeners might not believe this, but this is true. In fact, I, I give a talk on these very issues, and I, one of them, two journalists raised their hands at the end, and they said, yeah, we've been guilty of that. We, like, we've taken a press release, and we've basically regurgitated it uh, in our publication, and it turned out to have been misinformation, and we're very sorry for that, and we're trying not to do this again. Um, and so in nutrition, this hype cycle is particularly prevalent. I mean, we hear about miracle fruits and demonized foods all the time. But when we go back to the original scientific article, we realize that the findings have been greatly exaggerated on their way to our eyes and our ears. And the last thing that I want to mention is is manufacturoversies, uh, which is a word that I really like. So these are manufactured controversies. Uh, because, you know, sometimes there is a consensus in the scientific literature. Scientists agree where the findings are pointing. But then you have interest groups that come along and they mix themselves in there. Uh, and they either fund bad studies or uh, they just end up looking like legitimate scientific critics of actual research. Uh, we've talked about the Environmental Working Group in the past. Uh, there are some mommy bloggers that have been uh, sort of uh, pulled up to the level of, of, of scientific experts. There's a tobacco industry as well. So sometimes it looks as if scientists are changing their minds, but it just ends up being manufactured doubt. And our job is to filter out uh, the bad studies. Indeed. And, and sometimes we do it on stage or once a year, don't we? <laughs> we do. And that brings us uh, to our segue because every year we do put on the Chartier Public Science Symposium. And the goal there is to bring high-quality science to the public in an understandable fashion. And over the years, we've addressed numerous topics. We've looked at alternative medicine. Uh, we've uh, looked at uh, some aspects of, uh, of astronomy. Uh, we looked at food. And this year, I think, uh, subject matter that affects all of us, because one thing that nobody can argue against is that every minute that passes brings us one minute closer to the end. It doesn't sound very good, but it is the truth. How very stoic of you. Totally yes, morbid. This is a beautiful memento mori. And we would like to know if there's anything that we can do to slow down the clock. Or reverse it. Or reverse it. <laughs> and there, there may be something. And that's what we're going to address in our subject matter this year, which is longing for longevity. Emily. Yes. What is it all about? Uh, the Trache Symposium is our annual event. This is our 10th year, no, our ninth year hosting. The OSS is, this is the ninth year. Um, it starts Tuesday and Wednesday, the 22nd and 23rd. Uh, we have three amazing speakers all about, um, all on different aspects of aging and longevity. I thought there were four amazing speakers. Oh, there's four amazing speakers because Dr. Joe Schwartz is one of them this year. <laughs> um, yes, exactly. There are four. Um, on the Tuesday, we have Dr. David Sinclair. Um, he's a professor of genetics at Harvard. Um, he's doing some amazing research on aging and also treating it. I mean, it does affect everybody, but he's kind of looking at, at it as a as maybe aging as a disease and if it can be reversed or quote unquote treated. Um 
he has a new book out and uh, it's going to be very interesting, actually, his talk. Then we have Kelly Dobos and she's looking at cosmetics and anti-aging claims and marketing techniques and, you know, what we can trust and what we can't and um, a lot of the hype that goes with that. And she's a cosmetic chemist. And then the next day we have you talking about uh, longing for longevity, who will be also intro introducing Dr. Ruth, the famous Dr. Ruth without a last name. Uh, Westheimer, who will be looking at uh, sex after 50. And yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting. She's alive and well and kicking and um, she'll let us know. She's she'll 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 let us know if there's sex after 50. And and from what there is apparently there is. And from what I've heard her discuss um, with some of the interviews we've done, um, she has some tricks and tidbits and really honestly good things, I think, to know. And she she really emphasizes um, the importance of intimacy and relationships as one age. And I think that that's, you know, this is joie de vivre also as as we go through life and the importance of um, having relationships, basically. And uh, that, that could be a secret to longevity. All right. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Speaking earlier about the flu and vaccination against the flu, and as you know, there's controversy, not among scientists, of course, but among some people about the risk-benefit ratio of the flu. Dr. William Osler, uh, sort of the, the patron saint of modern medicine, uh, he had a McGill connection, he had a connection to Johns Hopkins Hospital, and I want to read you a little bit here, a paragraph that he said uh, when there were some controversies already about vaccination, and this, of course, was years and years ago. Dr. Osler, here, I would like to say a word or two upon one of the most terrible of all acute infections, the one of which we first learned to control through the work of Jenner. A great deal of literature has been distributed, casting discredit upon the value of vaccination and the prevention of smallpox. I do not see how anyone who has gone through epidemics as I have or who is familiar with the history of the subject and who has any capacity left for clear judgment can doubt its value. Some months ago, I was twitted by the editor of the Journal of the Anti-Vaccination League for, quote, a curious silence on this subject. I would like to issue a Mount Carmel-like challenge to any 10 unvaccinated priests of Baal. I will get into the next severe epidemic with 10 selected vaccinated persons and 10 selected unvaccinated persons. I should prefer to choose the latter, three members of parliament, three anti-vaccination doctors, if they can be found, and four anti-vaccination propagandists. And I will make this promise neither to jeer nor to jibe when they catch the disease, but to look after them as brothers, and for the four or five who are certain to die, I will try to arrange the funerals with all the pomp and ceremony of anti-vaccination demonstrations. So this was William Osler uh, against the anti-vaccinationists, because at one time there was even controversy about the smallpox vaccine. Jonathan, I mean, this is ridiculous, right? I mean, uh, we've now wiped out smallpox because of the vaccination, and yet there was this controversy. Well, as as we keep saying about vaccines, you know, they they have been victims of their own success, and you have these powerful forces, these lobby groups of of anti-vaccinationists who keep uh, pushing misinformation down the throat of people. Just yesterday, there was supposed to be an anti-vaccination forum in Harlem, New York, uh, that got canceled before it actually happened. Uh, The Reverend Al Sharpton uh, 
was organizing this. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was supposed to be there uh, with a you know long list of the usual suspects. And these events still take place and anti-vaccination tropes are still making their way on social media. There are podcasts that are repeating these tropes in YouTube videos. This misinformation has never gone away. It just changes shape. It adapts to the medium. And Andrew Wakefield, of course, who uh, wrote that controversial paper in, in The Lancet uh, linking autism to, to vaccination. Well, I shouldn't say controversial. It's not controversial among scientific circles. Uh, it was a fraudulent paper. Uh, basically, uh, he was looking for money because he wanted to have his own vaccine. Uh, he also was uh, in cahoots with an insurance company. I mean, it was really an ugly story. He lost his uh, license to practice in England, but he's now in the U.S. and uh, he's speaking all over the place, uh, making money. Uh, yeah, he's being held as a hero by people who believe yeah. in what he's uh, selling them. So anyway, go get your flu vaccine. Don't listen to the anti-vaccination uh, people. And it's not just for yourself, but it's also for the people around you who may have weakened immune systems to protect them. Absolutely. Well, we're talking about aging, and Alzheimer's disease is you know, one of the most... Uh, scary prospects. It's age-related, and its incidence is increasing. It's uh, characterized by deposits of a protein called amyloid between nerve cells, and uh, there's also these unusual protein tangles within nerve cells, and there are fewer connections between nerve cells, and the rate of the disease varies around the world. Uh, Drugs have a minimal effect on the progress of the disease, but the drugs that have some efficacy are thought to function either by increasing the levels of the neurotransmitter acetylcholine or uh, blocking the effects of the excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate. Alzheimer's disease is not curable, and uh, its cause is unknown. Given the uncertainty surrounding this disease, it's not surprising that attempts to unravel its mysteries make for an active area of research. There are various theories about its cause, which sets the stage for exploitation by marketers who claim efficacy for their products with insufficient evidence. A typical example would be Suvenade, a dietary supplement that was developed by a very respected researcher, Richard Wortman at MIT. He's a reputable researcher, and the formulation Suvenade is based on legitimate science, but unfortunately the evidence for its effectiveness is virtually negligible. In Alzheimer's, there's a loss of synapses, the connections between nerve cells that form when protrusions develop in cell membranes and reach out towards neighboring nerve cells. The theory is that providing nutrients needed for a healthy cell membrane encourages the formation of new synapses to compensate for the experience loss. Well, Suvenate provides a range of nutrients. They include omega-3 fatty acids and phospholipids and choline, uridine monophosphate, vitamins E, C, B12, B6, folic acid, and selenium, based on the theory that these are needed for the synthesis of a chemical called phosphatidylcholine, which is a major constituent of synaptic membranes. The more phosphatidylcholine in cell membranes, the greater the likelihood that the synapse will form properly, or at least so goes the theory. But a theory needs evidence to back it up if it is to evolve into practical recommendations, and that evidence so far has not been forthcoming. It isn't for a lack of effort. A number of studies have been carried out on Alzheimer's patients with Suvenade using standardized assessment scales. The results are disappointing. There is no evidence of decreasing the rate of cognitive decline or delaying the progression of the disease in any way. 
but one of the studies offered a slight glimmer of hope. In patients experiencing early Alzheimer's disease who are not yet taking medication, there was an improvement in verbal recall. That isn't much to hang a hat on, but at least the supplement was tolerated without side effects. Suvenate is on the market in Europe and Australia, but not yet here in North America, despite the low level of evidence that is required for selling dietary supplements. Uh, my guess is that Suvenate is not going to be of much help in Alzheimer's disease, but uh, Richard Wertman, as I said, is a well-known scientist, and there is substance to the theory. Maybe adjustment of the components uh, is uh, going to make a difference, but again, I think uh, putting the cart before the horse and promoting Suvenade as a potential preventative or treatment of Alzheimer's disease is, is just not scientifically sound. There are many, many other concoctions out there that claim to be of some benefit in reducing the risk of Alzheimer's, but none of them have any real clinical evidence. However, uh, there is some very legitimate science in, in aging, and we're going to hear some of that from uh, uh, Dr. Sinclair uh, from Harvard, and uh, he's uh, got some real insight into supplements that actually may work better than the souvenir that I just mentioned. And, of course, you will hear Dr. David Sinclair. He will be part of our Longing for Longevity Symposium on October 22nd and October 23rd. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. As we said before, aging is kind of a frightening prospect, and uh, we have long searched for the fountain of youth. And according to a lot of ads that you see in magazines or on the Internet, you would think that we have found it, uh, that there are cosmetics that can keep you looking young, or there are various potions and supplements that you can take uh, that will make you live forever. Uh, much of this, of course, is hype, but it doesn't mean that there isn't some solid science behind some of these claims. And, of course, those are the kind of things that we are going to explore at our symposium this year as we talk about longing for longevity. And uh, we need to give you a few details about um, just where uh, it is and how to go about getting there. Emily. Sure. Um, as in previous years, it's taking place at the Centre Mont-Royal, which is 1000 Sherbrooke Street West, corner Mansfield, um, 7 to 9 p.m. on uh, the 22nd and 23rd. It is totally free, no registration required. All you have to do is show up. Um, I suggest you do not get there at 7 o'clock if you want a seat. Um, our turnouts normally are very good, and I think this year will be no exception. Um, I would suggest getting there about 45 minutes before to um, to take a seat. Doors will be open, so you just have to uh, come right on in. The second night is the uh, legendary Dr. Ruth, as I mentioned, and uh, we watched the movie mm -hmm. about her, the documentary, yeah. uh, which was absolutely amazing. She's fascinating. Uh, she's no, fasc I mean, she's a remarkable woman with a uh, history. Uh, she was born in Frankfurt in, in Germany uh, prior to the Second World War. And uh, she uh, was one of the lucky uh, few children mm -hmm. who was allowed out of Germany uh, before the Holocaust. And uh, she ended up in an orphanage in Switzerland, in Switzerland. Uh, at the age of 10. And uh, 
her story from then on is is, is remarkable. She eventually uh, uh, found a husband in Israel. Uh, she was in the uh, in the army. She was a sniper. Mm-hmm. Although she makes a point of the fact that she never did shoot anyone. Right. Uh, she was injured by uh, 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 basically a, can- a cannon fire where both of her legs were injured and ended up in uh, in hospital. And then she studied at the Sorbonne in, in Paris and came to America and became really the first uh, sex therapist, uh, you mm-hmm. know, certainly on the telephone and uh, radio. Immediate and, personality sex therapist. Yeah. yeah. TV. Uh, after that, she went on to have a, her own show, interview show, even a sitcom. Mm-hmm. Commercials. Uh, she was in commercials. Uh, and boy, is she ever a spry 91 year old? Yes, four foot seven, spry 91 year old. Yes, and she's somehow proud of the fact that she's four foot seven. Yeah. She mentioned it yeah. uh, uh, very she often. She said, small and perfect. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the most interesting personalities that I've ever encountered. And um, if uh, if you can somehow see the documentary, it's, it's... It's available on Hulu, and I'm not sure where here in Canada we can see it, unfortunately. I don't even think it's on Crave. Um, it might be on iTunes for purchase, actually. Uh, you could definitely see the trailer, I know. The and trailer is actually very good. The trailer is great, yeah. yeah. And I, I'm sure at some point it will be in Canada readily available. And something else that I really enjoyed watching was her TED Talk. Mm-hmm. which is uh, only about 17 and a half minutes. And it's, uh, she calls it joie de vivre. Mm-hmm. And um, basically she talks about the importance of, of having contacts right. uh, in, in the world. And uh, uh, she also uh, makes a point out of the fact that uh, everyone has problems, but you should put those problems in a package and leave it outside of the bedroom mm-hmm. uh, because no one's going to steal them. And you do whatever needs to be done inside, and then you can pick up your problems when you when you leave. But um, it was a big focus of the documentary. And then again, I guess I imagine the TED Talk, and I think she'll be addressing it here with us as well. Um, the importance, of, like I said before, of relationships and intimacy. And as you, we saw in the documentary, because she did not grow up with a family, um, when she was um, sent to Switzerland, the the importance of human relationships and touch and closeness with people, um, I think kind of uh, all that, you know, encouraged her to go into this field also, which, you know, bounced off into, into sex down the road. Absolutely. And uh, I think we should also say that she had extensive training in this field. Yes. So it's not, you know, she's not a doctor. Thing. No, she, she really yeah. is a doctor and has a PhD to back Absolutely. everything. Up. And, and she uh, has done research yeah. uh, in, in this and, uh, um, she did a radio show for, uh, 40 years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she's very, very reputable and amazingly interesting. Oh, I, I, I think it's one of these events that you don't want to miss. Uh, and she really loves talking uh, to people, and she she says that she gets a lot of her, uh, she learns from the questions. So I really encourage people to come out, and uh, there will be a Q and A. Um, so feel free to ask um, Dr. Ruth your questions. Yeah, I, I must say that that I, I actually watched her TED Talk twice because I found it so so interesting. There were there and tips so in there too. That, there, 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 are some, there, are tips, there are some tips in there. Yeah, about uh, how to properly maintain relationships. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think this is uh, is going to be a, a winner. And uh, I mean, aging obviously is is uh, a problem because even if we do find some 
so partial solutions where people are going to live longer. Uh, the question is what that means for society at large, you know, because are those extra years going to be uh, health healthy? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the use of living to 120 if your last 20 years are spent in right. in, in misery? We actually failed to mention, um, we kept talking about the evening lectures, 7 to 9, but on the Tuesday, there is a roundtable session that is open to the public also, and I know it's in the middle of the day, but certain people can uh, are able to you know leave work and, and come. Um, so please do, 1.30 to 3, again at the CMR, um, and that will be with our three speakers, and in addition, Dr. Lori, um, who people will also know from radio, and uh, Dr. Ari uh, Benchitreat, who is a plastic surgeon and has a clinic um, here in Montreal, and we will be talking all about um, aging, cosmetics, sex, every all these types of, of questions that we're talking about now will be open to them and moderated by Dr. Joe. So again, it's free, of course. Yeah. So it's at uh, 1000 Sherbrooke Street West. That's the corner of Mansfield. One o'clock for the... 1.30. 1.30 for the uh, Tuesday session. And then, of course, the evening sessions are from 7 to 9. Hopefully, we will see you there. And uh, you'll get to meet uh, a living legend. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that is it. We have run smack out of time, but uh, we will be back with you same time, same station next week. And I guess we'll talk about what happened at our symposium. You've been listening to the Dr. Joshua. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, hope all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.